0: The time is finally here. You've mapped out your garden spot, you've bought the seeds, you started the seeds, you've tested your soil, and it's finally time to plant. But there are still a number of questions that I'm guessing are rumbling around in your brain. Things like, wait a second, when do I actually plant? What if it snows on my seedlings? How early is too early? How much should I plant for my family? And maybe even how do you prepare the area? So it's maximized potential for all of your brand new seeds. We're going to cover all of those questions and more in today's episode. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, bestselling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. So this is the exciting time. This is when the rubber meets the road. It's the moment of truth. It's time to get out in the garden. And I just want to assure you before you start the planting process that this can feel pretty crazy and somewhat busy to get everything planted. It usually takes me a couple of days to do this. But the good news is once stuff is planted, you get a little bit of a break. There's a little bit of a reprieve before the garden starts to demand more from you. So if you can get through the planting period and get your watering system set up, we're going to talk about all of that in future episodes. You get a nice little well-deserved break. Once we get everything in the soil, that is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's just dive right in. One of the biggest things I see a lot of people struggle with or even make mistakes around is knowing when to plant their vegetables. Uh, Now the easiest way to get yourself some data on this, I feel like data has been a theme of this season, is through the good old internet. So I'm going to drop a link in the show notes. It's a handy dandy last frost date calculator. And you just plug in your zip code Uh, I think it's at garden.org, plug in your zip code, and it's going to spit out when you are looking at planting or when your last frost date is. I'm going to do it right now. I know you can't see my screen, but I'm going to do it here live. Okay, so I typed in my zip code, and it has this little chart, and there's one for in the spring and one for in the fall, and it's giving me last temperature Benchmarks by their percentage of likeliness that they would occur. So, the last time that I should hit 32 degrees on average in the spring is there's a 10% chance of it happening on May 26th, a 20% chance of it happening May 21st, 30% all the way to 90%. Um, my, they, so, they go from 16 degrees all the way to 36 degrees. And the last time that I'll hit 36 degrees is a low. The 10% chance of that is June 14th. So you can see when I plant, I plant pretty late. And odds are you will get to plant a little bit earlier than I do. But that's what I'm looking at. And this this goes right in line with what I already knew is that our generally our planting date is Memorial Day. Or sometimes the first week in June, depending on the year, I'll even wait a little bit longer just to make sure so this is right on another way to figure this out. It doesn't hurt for you to realize your garden zone. And so I think I talked about this on the first episode. I'm going to, you can go to Google. I'll do it right now or your favorite search engine. And what you will type in is uh garden zone calculator. I'm doing it live just so I can tell you what I'm seeing. Okay, so there's a couple different, there's actually a lot of these. The one I usually go to is the USDA USDA.gov uh, plant hardiness zone map. Obviously, if you're not in the U.S., then you don't want to use the USDA map. You want to use something else. But I'm assuming all countries are going to have something something similar. Well, this is interesting. I got an error message with the government one. Okay, I feel like there's a lot of jokes that could be made on that, but I will refrain. Let's find a different one. Um, Garden.org has their own, okay, they have their own version of the USDA hardiness zone map. You'll see it. It's a map of the United States with all different colors. And if you click on it, you kind of have to blow it up a little bit because it's small. You just find your state, you find the color, and you go to the key on the side and it tells you. So where we are in Wyoming, Wyoming is purple and blue, which is... The cold ones. We are light blue. We are zone 5A. Okay, I thought we were 5B. So this is see, I'm learning something new today. We are 5A, which means then I can take that information and plug that into a frost date table or spreadsheet, and it'll also give me a last frost date. So all that's all gonna give you the same information, but it's just good to know your zone and it's good to know your frost date. Now Once you know your frost date, you have a little bit of room to break the rules with certain plants. There are some plants that will not bode well with you being a rule breaker, but others you can get away with it. So, the most important thing here, and this is what I have found, I I definitely wait with my most sensitive plants till all danger of frost is past, because I have known friends here who get so excited to put in their garden, you know, there will be weeks around the 1st of May here in Wyoming that are beautiful. They're even hot. I mean, the sun is shining. We're outside in t-shirts. We're feeling good. And it's like, Oh my gosh, I got to plant. You just get this urge to plant and it's really, really hard to fight it, but you got to fight it because I've seen friends put gardens in. And then a week later it's blizzarding. That's how we roll here. You may not roll like that with your weather, but that's how we roll. So be very careful with that temptation when it gets a little bit of a warm snap. You can get away with planting certain things, but not others. So things that I will not plant outside until we are solidly past Memorial Day. Um, Tomato starts, beans, things like squash. I've done, I, I say melons. Melons would fit in this category. I don't do a lot of melons, but that would, would qualify um, corn. Uh, What else? I'm drawing a blank. Why am I drawing a blank? All those guys, you want to be really, really careful because like a tomato seedling, they have no toughness when it comes to a frost. You will be a goner. And if you've started your tomatoes from seed, like we talked about in a previous episode, and they all die a week after you plant them because they get frozen, that will be a very, very sad day. And I would like to help you avoid that if at all possible. So don't push your luck with those guys. Now on the flip side, there are plants you can put in earlier. So even if we get a blizzard, so we always get a blizzard, always, I'd say three out of four years, we'll get get a blizzard on Mother's Day weekend. It's our favorite blizzard day. Um, So there are things like peas, lettuce, spinach, onions, I'll even throw some potatoes in the ground well before Memorial Day here. And if it does freeze a little bit, if we do get our blizzard, they usually are fine. I have even pushed the envelope a little bit on my cabbage seedlings and my um, broccoli, like my brassica seedlings. I wouldn't put them out so they're super exposed. But if it gets a little bit cold after I transplant them, they're usually just fine. So it, it will behoove you to do a little research on what you're planting and figure out which is your sensitive stuff and what is your hardier Stuff Now, the biggest thing, all this being said, soil temperature is really, really key here. So I have experimented in the past, you know, April, I'll put some lettuce seeds in the ground or some arugula or some spinach because everybody's like, oh, they grow well in the cold. Well, they do, but they will not germinate unless the soil temperature gets to a certain point. And Time and time again, I have tried this. Even in my raised beds that are slightly warmer than in the ground, right, because they're up off the ground, so they have more sun exposure. Even in the raised beds, I'll put those seeds in the ground, and they won't start germinating sometimes till four weeks later when everything else is germinating. Just because the soil temperature, it's really hard to, to work around that. Um, the average soil temperature that you need to germinate kind of your average vegetable is around 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Now there are some seeds that will germinate cooler than that, but it has to be on the warm side. So for me, I just do best to plant almost everything around Memorial Day. I might get a little bit of cheat time two weeks early, but nothing much more than that. Funny story. I bought a soil thermometer. I was all proud of myself because I'm like, I'm going to get data. I'm going to get data on this and I'm going to try to, you know, not be guessing my soil temp. And so I'm going to go buy a fancy soil thermometer. So I ordered one. I think it was off of Amazon back when I was still using Amazon. I'm trying really hard not to order on Amazon uh, much these days. I, I had a podcast episode earlier this year explaining why, but anyway, I got my package in the mail. I was super excited. I opened it up and this, thermometer, which was sold as a fancy soil thermometer and was definitely pricier than a typical thermometer, it was the exact same meat thermometer I had in my kitchen drawer. So I'm telling you this because if you have a meat thermometer, you may be able to just use that for your garden as well and just wash it in between uses uh, or buy an extra one. So anyway, you don't have to buy a fancy soil thermometer because they're probably all the same as what you already have. Alrighty. Um, preparing the area this is a a tricky I don't tricky is a word this is a broad topic because there's a lot of trains of thought around preparing soil there's a lot of no-till people there are the lasagna gardeners which are the ones who layer things and try not to dig and there are um the old-fashioned rototill gardeners and raised bed people like me who kind of do a mixture because it, you can't get a rototiller up in a, a raised bed. So there's a lot of thoughts here. Um, I would say there's not one or the other that's the only way. It just depends on your situation. The, the most basic way to prepare a garden plot is to rototill it up. And I would say that for a lot of folks, even if you have long-term plans of going no-till or minimal till you're going to have to start with something because if you have an area that's got a lot of grass or weeds um you can't just plant in the lawn right you gotta you gotta dig it up you gotta give yourself a baseline so what we did for several years we borrowed a rototiller we didn't have one at the time so we would either get one from a friend or we would go to our local rental store in town and bring home a rototiller for the weekend just a little walk behind kind and till it up and we did that once a year and when we first broke ground on our garden after we moved here that's also what we did we got the rototiller we tilled it up once which was a lot of work when it's hard prairie ground and then we brought in wheelbarrow loads of composted horse manure because this ground had never been planted in before and then we did another pass with the rototiller or maybe even two more passes and worked in all of that composted manure. And then I just took a rake and raked out the big clods and the rocks, pushed them over to the side. And then I had my garden plot. And that that's as simple. I mean, if you want to go the simple route, that's about as simple as it gets. Um, We later on invested in a rototiller, which I will say has been a good homestead investment, even with our raised beds now. We use the rototiller quite a bit, um, but you can always borrow one. Hey friend, I'm interrupting this episode for just a sec to give you a very important reminder. If you have not yet purchased seeds for this year, I would recommend doing that ASAP. We are seeing some pretty crazy seed shortages right now, partially because a lot of people are gardening who didn't in the past, and partially because of some weird COVID stuff and there's a lot of varieties that are selling out. So now is the time. I get a lot of people asking about my favorite place to order seeds, and one of my absolute favorite companies in the whole wide world is True Leaf Market. They're basically like a giant virtual seed rack. They have tons of heirloom and organic varieties, all the vegetables, herbs, cover crops, flowers, and even microgreens. Plus, their seeds have a great germination rate and they ship super fast. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash seeds to do some shopping and, just for my listeners, use code SPRING2021 when you check out to save $10 off your first order of $50 or more. Now, back to our episode. Now, another option, if you want to go a little more analog, a little more old school, is you can use a regular old shovel to dig or to work your ground if you want a good workout or a broad fork. A broad fork um, is something, it's a tool that's become very popular in recent years. It's been around a long time, but it's really just kind of come back to light and resurfaced. It looks like a extra large pitchfork with two handles sticking up on either side of the tines. And you step on it and press it into the ground. And then you wiggle it and pull it back out and it can aerate the soil and loosen the soil. Um, they run, I think about 200 bucks a pop, which is still cheaper than a rototiller. Uh, it's a little more sweat equity to get a garden done the broad fork method. But I know a lot of the more organic gardeners or sustainable permaculture guys, they really like them. So if you're wanting a good workout And you're going to wanting to have less soil disruption, you know, mechanical soil disruption from a regular rototiller, a broad fork may be the route you want to take. I have looked several times at getting one for my raised beds, because even though I work really hard to add organic matter to my raised beds and I don't walk on them, so I'm trying to reduce compaction, sometimes they still just get a little bit uh, packed down over the winter. And they need to be worked up before I can put seeds in the soil. So I've looked at getting a broad fork for my raised beds. The problem is the ones I've seen are pretty large. And I don't know if they'd fit very well into my beds. So I'm still exploring that option. But if you're just working up a big garden area, it, it could work for you. So it's worth looking into. Now, one other option. Now, this is if you have more time. If, if you're listening to this like right before planting season, disregard this idea. But if you have some more time to play with, you can also work on like smothering out any grass or lawn or weeds that are in your garden area. There's a lot of different methods to this. One that's really common is people will get layers of cardboard or newspaper, they'll wet them down so they tend to lay a little bit flatter. And they will put heavy layers of those over their garden area. And then they'll put organic matter, compost and things and stuff over the top and let that start working. And it not only smothers out the grass and the weeds, but it'll start to break down and and soften things up a little bit. It's not going to give you the exact same results that a rototiller would give you, obviously, but it's going to be a great way to get rid of the sod. Because in my experience for us, like the grass, digging out grass, dealing with grass is always the hardest part. It's tough. The roots go down you're, you're fighting the clods and fighting the mounds of grass. So that can give you a little bit of a head, uh, a legs, a leg up. And then another option, um, is called solarization where you can take black, thick black plastic, like landscape plastic, and you can lay that over an area, secure it down with rocks and let it sit for eight weeks or so. And the sun will bake, um, the plants, the seed, the weed seeds, the grass seeds or the grass underneath and help eliminate that before you go work it up for your garden. Now, I've heard some mixed opinions on solarization because it could also damage some of the microorganisms in the soil just because of that intensified heat. So I wouldn't say that would be my first choice. If I was going to do the layering method, I'd probably do the cardboard and the newspaper because it's going to break down and become Part of the soil, but just wanting to give you all your options. So however you decide to do it, a broad fork, a rototiller, the the smothering cardboard method, the objective is, is just to have the soil prepared for planting. Um and it can be it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be pretty simple. Like I like I mentioned, what I did our first year with our garden, we rototilled it, I put a layer of compost. We rototilled it again. I raked it. I then set out my rows with stakes and stuff and I planted. It was just super simple. Alrighty. So we've done our prep. We figured out when to plant, what well, we could plant a little early. Now it's time to put stuff in the ground, right? Um, I feel like this is fairly self explanatory, but I wanted to give you some best practices. Uh, in case you're wondering or you're feeling a little bit nervous about this moment of truth, where everything comes to a head, I'd say that the biggest thing as you are putting plants in your garden um, and you are figuring out where things go is it's a it's a good idea to have your areas roughly mapped out before you start. So for example, you know, potatoes are going to go on this side, you have your corn patch here, you have your pumpkins here. And that way, you know, once, for me, it always feels different once I'm in the garden planting than what I had on my paper. But it's just still super helpful to know at least areas of where I'm putting things. Also, to make sure that if I'm you know, on my second or third year or fourth of a garden that I'm not putting the same plants in the same areas over and over again, because you can have the potential to deplete the nutrients that way. So that way I have a little more, um, idea of where to rotate and so on. Ooh, you know what? I totally skipped over talking about how much to plant. Cause that would be kind of another logical question in this conversation, right? How much do you plant? Um, And this is a pretty big topic because there's lots of options and lots of variables. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to drop a link in the show notes to a blog post I wrote a while back all about how much to plant. And it gives you some things to think about as well as just some hard and fast numbers. And they're not going to be exact because there's variables, but just to give you an idea of, you know, oh, plant this many bean plants per person this many cabbages per person. Um, I figured that would be really boring if I were to read that out to you on a podcast. So I'm just going to let you read it yourself and have that blog post as reference. Um, but that's a good place to start. Honestly, I think our first year, or uh, honestly subsequent years, I didn't get super mathematical which how mu- with how much I wanted to plant. I just kind of eyeballed it and used the space I had available and did the best I could. And for many years, our garden, you know, would give us some things to eat, but it wouldn't necessarily supply us with onions for the entire year or green beans for the entire year. My my initial goal was just to have some, you know, enough to last us through a period of time. And then I, you know, would use grocery store options or farmer's market options to fill in those gaps. And as the years have gone on, I have started to figure out what I like to grow in quantity, what I don't like to grow in quantity. Like I figured out, you know, how how many onions I really need to, to get us further into the winter or potatoes. I've realized that beets grow really well here, but I could never get my family to eat them. And it was a huge stress of like, what do I do with all these beets? So I don't grow many of those. So you'll kind of get your own rhythm going the longer you go. But at least that blog post has some places to start. Okay, so where were we figuring out, um, where we're putting things in the garden. Oh, okay. I think the biggest thing to pay attention to as you get out there and start to plant is just watch your spacing and your depth. Some seeds like to be a half inch underground. Some seeds like to be sprinkled on top and probably more than likely your seed packets are going to tell you exactly what to do here. And I still, however many years in of gardening, I still look at my seed packs to help guide me along the way as I plant, just to remind myself, I rarely, actually never, <laughs> use any sort of measuring device when I'm out in the garden. You'll, If you ask my husband, though, I'm also not a very exact person. Like, I like to do things well, but I also, there's a point where details make my brain hurt. So I'm more like the get it done girl. So I take note, okay, this needs to be six inches apart and this needs to be a half inch deep, but I'm pretty much eyeballing those things. And believe it or not, it's worked out pretty well. Like I haven't had any huge snafus from my lack of measuring tapes out in the garden. When I'm planting in rows, I like to just take a hoe and I drag the hoe along the row and kind of, gauge you know how deep that that row would need to be i'll plant the seeds in at the appropriate spacing and then just cover up and that's how i do it with green seeds like lettuce spinach you're going to be much more surface so you're going to sow them more at the top of the soil and just barely cover them in um but it's it's pretty simple i don't have a cedar yet like a cedar machine i think i may invest in one of those this year But up until now, it's just me on my hands and knees putting seeds in the ground. And it doesn't have to be difficult. Um, The biggest thing, once you get the seeds in and you cover them up, you know, mark your rows because you will absolutely forget (laughs) what you planted where. Like literally two hours later, I can't remember what I planted. So get stakes. I just get simple wooden stakes and write on them in Sharpie. You can do cuter things if you'd like, but I just get it done and then mark the rows, and then make sure you have a way just to keep yourself and your family from walking on the rows. We, I'm really careful when I do anything in the ground, just to tell the kids, you know, we don't. We're trying to walk on the soil as little as possible. Stay in the paths um, to keep compaction to a minimum. And then it's just watering, lots of watering. With seeds, it's crucial that they do not dry out once they start germinating you know, a more mature plant or even a teenager plant, as I like to call them, that's the technical term. Um, they can deal with a little bit more drying out. Like you have a little bit of forgiveness there, just a little, but a seed, once it starts to germinate and it dries out, you're done. You got to start over. So water I water them every single day. I make sure I'm soaking the ground to get that seed softened and, and wet enough to do its thing. Um, what else do I want to tell you about planting? be careful planting in the shade. I I think I've told you guys the story of the tree in my garden. <laughs> Back in the day, we we built our this new garden plot of ours when we first moved into the homestead and there was this lovely tree in the middle and I just couldn't bear to tear it out because trees are so hard to grow here. So I told Christian I'm like, "It's okay, I'll just we'll just till around the tree and it'll be really cool and special to have a tree in the middle of the garden." Uh, it looked cool, I guess. But I realized really fast that anything I planted around the tree didn't grow very well because of the shade. And as much as I tried to just soldier through it and make it work, it doesn't work. Um, unless you're planting things like lettuce or spinach. They can handle a little bit more shade, but anything else is like, eh, not gonna work. So avoid the shade. Um, that goes for also where you're planting certain, Items like if you have really tall plants, you don't want to crowd them next to short plants because they could um, give a little bit too much shade and so on. So, in the next episode, we're going to get into the more specifics of what I call the honeymoon period of your garden when the seeds are coming up and things feel pretty simple and the stress of planning and planting and laying out and figuring is done and it's not time to harvest yet. So you just get to enjoy the process. And we'll also talk a little bit about what to do if your seeds don't sprout, but that's for next time. My takeaway for you in this episode, again, I feel like this is my theme of this series. I wanna give you data. I wanna give you this detailed information, but then I also want us to be able to pull back and know that it doesn't have to be complicated. And really, it can be as simple as preparing a little plot of dirt, sticking a seed in the soil, and watering it. (laughs) And you can easily grow food that way. So take the things I've told you into consideration, tuck them away, know that they're there, but also know that if you stick a seed in the ground and water it, you're probably going to have some food. And that's the magic of this gardening process. So I am getting more and more excited for this growing season. I think the problem with with this podcast season is that it's so early and now I'm in the mood to be out there in the soil and I have a ways to go, but it's fun to share all this information with you and all the excitement. Um, so there you have it. If you would like my homestead layout guide that gives you really good information on how big your garden should be, where you should put a garden, how you set it up in relation to everything else. You can grab my little guide for free over at theprairiehomestead.com slash layout. And it also is a great way for us to stay in touch via email if you're not on social media much these days because it's a weird place over there. Um, Wild, wild west of social media. So join me on email. I send out a little newsletter once a week and we can stay in touch with all the latest homesteading news. So thanks so much for listening, my friend. I know there's a lot of podcasts to listen to, and I'm really honored that you chose to spend the last, what is it, 27 minutes here with me. So I hope it was helpful, and we will talk again on the next episode of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast.